Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, your neighborhood friendly pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. I don't have any more of an intro to follow that. I'm too busy thinking, oh, hello. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Like once it's stuck in your head, like that's, I mean, it's such a fun thing to think about. Let's just, let's, let's greet our viewers like they just stumbled into our recording studio. <laughs> so guys, we've been having a lot of fun this season, ranging perhaps a bit further afield from traditional medical topics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we started off like travel medicine, you know, five seasons back. And then it was just medicine and then the history of medicine. And then it slowly morphed into vaguely medical stuff. but. Essentially, you guys are on a ride of stuff that interests us. I don't like that <laughs> intro either. Damn it. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I can't focus no, tonight. No, no, no. I'll no, do no, this. That's okay. I'll do this. You're okay. Pickled. Yeah. Um thinking, thinking. <laughs> just Okay. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be. Like it does. <laughs> I'm so bad at segues, and I will get better. It doesn't have to be one of the things that you have to fix in order to live like a just and fruitful <laughs> life. <laughs> you can be like you are now and still continue to make a great podcast. Hey guys. So this week, yeah, I figured it might be fun to. Uh, 
continue exploring the animal kingdom. We've talked about zebras. We've talked about cocaine hippos. Sometimes I wonder if we're even a medicine show anymore. We've traveled so far afield from oh, that topic. The, oh, well done. Well done. For anybody who hasn't been uh, <laughs> who hasn't been listening on this side of the headphones, that was take 32, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. We we had to get to this point, but we're here and we're with talking all, about with all yeah. the records deleted, you'll never prove it. No, no. I I can't. They just have to take my word for it that I had to sit through <laughs> just obsession for the last 15 minutes. You know, Santos, sometimes I feel like we could use some help. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's we can't just do medicine all on our own. Sometimes you need a hand or a paw. And in fact, that's a perfect introduction to this week's topic, which is going to be medical animals. The role of service animals has changed somewhat over the years. Yeah, and I think with recent stuff, they've even been a little bit demonized. We're going to devote this, the rest of this episode, to different ways animals have helped out over the years. Yeah, and if you guys want to go back through previous episodes, um, Dr. Josh and I have talked about how animals in kind of like a research you know, kind of service have helped us with direct medical care. Um, my favorite example, Josh, one of the very first methods for detecting when a woman was pregnant was to actually take the urine and inject it into a bunny. And then if the bunny went into heat, went into estrus from the estrogens in the urine and the progesterone, then, you know, the, they'd be able to say, oh, the, the woman's pregnant. Yeah, so just just so we're clear, they would yeah. instead of the pee on a stick, you would pee effectively into a rabbit, and then if the rabbit started <laughs> having babies, you that were probably pregnant. Way way dirtier than it actually is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the urine was isolated, and it was actually taken by a you know like a a, a doctor type. I think this was an ancient Egypt one, wasn't it, Josh? It was. Yeah. And for a change, and for a change, you are the one to bring up ancient Egypt. I was, but I really, really liked learning about that. That made me super, super happy. But yeah, so um, I'm a big fan of, you know, the the role that animals have served in research and development, kind of almost as an extra technology in, uh, you know, understanding how human physiology works. That's one of the oldest uses of animals in ancient Egypt. But let's take a big jump to 16th century Europe. Yeah. And 16th to 19th century Europe. So this is before pasteurization of milk. This is before the invention of, uh, well, vulcanizing rubber. Okay. So, so nothing that could be sterilized. Right, right. So we had rubber, but we don't, didn't have it in the kind of the state that it is today. A lot. Of, there were a lot of issues that you may not realize were health concerns in the 16th to 19th century, one of which was the sheer number of diseases that could be transmitted through breast milk, which at the time there was no treatment for. Yeah. Uh, so nowadays, 
Um, we only have one contraindication to breastfeeding from the standpoint of infection, and that's actually HIV. Um, and that's, you know, a relatively recent worry in terms of human history. Previously, if mom was septicemic, if she had active tuberculosis, and that wouldn't transmit through the breast milk, but she'd be coughing on the baby. Um, so you needed a substitute. You needed someone to help breastfeed the baby because there was no such thing as formula. And so you'd have a wet nurse. And this was a particularly prevalent phenomenon in France. So the wealthy would send their infants out to the countryside to be suckled for several years by heavy bosomed peasants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd usually have a, a woman who had had her kids. If you kind of stimulate the milk response, really any woman of childbearing age can produce milk. They don't have to have had a baby immediately, although it helps. But there was a problem, uh-huh. particularly in France. Okay. There were two really hot trends going around in the Middle Ages. One of them was tuberculosis, the Tide Pods of its day, and the other was syphilis. Oh, yeah, yeah. Both really bad, and you you do not want to be breastfeeding a baby with active syphilis. The sheer widespread prevalence of these diseases meant many mothers who originally would send their children out to the countryside to be nannied and raised on only the finest organic milk, instead started keeping them home out of fear their babies would be infected with diseases from, you know, these unknown commoners. So the solution would be what? You couldn't go down to your local market. There was no pasteurization. Even, you know... Even if they knew about pasteurization, this was this was even before they had like good germ theory going on. So instead, French women and women throughout Europe turned instead to goats. <laughs> Not where no, you thought we no, were going, was it? Was, uh, so and and it's about to get even weirder because I'm sure some of you guys are thinking, oh, okay, they put milk like goat milk into like a bottle and fed it to the baby. Well, you'd be wrong. Because remember, we had already told you there weren't really any nipples for bottles since vulcanization for rubber hadn't been invented. You you didn't have a good delivery system uh, that was, you know, kind of simulating a woman's breast in order to feed a baby. And unfortunately, if you didn't have that kind of a surface for a baby to latch onto, they can't really drink any other way. They don't have the capability. So... Santos, you've heard the story of Remus and Romulus. Um, The Remus and Romulus were the founders of Rome, I believe, Uh, the mythological founders of Rome. But they had to be suckled by goats, right? Well, they were suckled by wolves. But you do bring up the fact that, yes, these babies would be fed straight from the goat's teat, as it were. Now, I know what you're thinking. That sounds horribly unsanitary. You were worried about you know, diseases from peasants, but you're going to slide a baby under a goat in a barn. And I say to you, don't be ridiculous. They went to the goat ward in the hospital. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, this is the closest thing that you could do um, with respect to keeping it clean is, you know, you couldn't pasteurize the milk itself, but you could, you know, bring them into a closed ward so that they weren't rolling around in, you know, moldy hay and that kind of a thing. You could give the goats a bath and clean the udders and then feed the baby straight from the teat. 
And then you can put a baby on a wooden tray, slide it under the goat, and let it go to town. What I, at least what you showed me, Josh, it worked pretty darn well. It did, because let's talk a moment about basic hygiene and what we in medicine right. call the universal precaution. <laughs> Santosh is an infectious disease doctor. I yeah. think you could probably state it best, but if it comes down to treat every surface yeah. as though it could carry infection and cleanse <laughs> yourself of said infection. We have the gels now, the alcohol-based mm-hmm. gels, which do actually a pretty good job, not with every single type of pathogen. We have hand-washing stations that have to be placed um, if it's a intensive care unit or a neonatal intensive care unit. How does this translate into Middle Ages? Well, without putting this milk in germ-infested buckets that were not properly cleaned, or pots, or having it, again, go through who knows how many unwashed or unbathed hands. By getting the milk directly from the source, the infants actually had a much lower likelihood of contracting even such basic infections like E. coli or the various bacteria associated with food poisoning. (laughs) But it It gets weirder. There there are some uh, pathogens which are transmitted in the milk, and you can't get rid of those. But the ones that are on the surface of the teats, um, you can cut down. Let's go into this. I am not making any of this up. I wish I was that creative. So here's how these goat wards were arranged. And again, the time, the biggest worry about babies nursing directly from goats was actually not that the infant would be injured. It's that it would grow up with the characteristics (laughs) of a goat. To be fair, you know, there's a lot we didn't know back then. And it's kind of fair to think that if a creature feeds from another creature, um, you know, you're getting nutrients and energy from from that thing that you will take on the characteristics of that thing. And this was, uh, Josh, I think this was kind of common across the board. Like you, this, the whole idea of like, you are what you eat or you become what you associate with. Well, Santosh, I can understand the mistakes. After all, you know what they say, <laughs> to err is human, to move bovine. It's a moo point anymore, I suppose, because I don't think it's true. So in the wards, the cribs would be arranged in a large room in two ranks. Each goat that would come into the ward would enter bleeding and would then go to find an infant oh, that way, had previously uh, been and introduced and given to it. So the bleating. goats, yes, as in, yeah. <laughs> no. it's radio. I can't can't work with cinnamons. Synonyms? No, no, Cin- no. Cinnamon, cinnamons. Right no. Uh. In fact, you had it right none of those times. Each goat comes in going meh, yeah, yeah. and then and, and finds the infant that had been assigned to it, pushing back the blanket with its horns, and then just stands over the crib yeah, so the, the infant can start was, feeding. Uh, you know, we always joke about, uh, you know, these animals are stupid or whatever, but it seems like, you know, the at least in terms of associating faces and smells, the goat could find its baby. In fact, they bonded so well with children that a German writer even published a book promoting the practice titled The Goat as the Best and Most Agreeable Wet Nurse. In fact, things became this idea of having babies suckled by goats became so popular uh, that people began to forget that it was done to avoid catching syphilis from wet nurses. And they said, how can we 
essentially <laughs> vaccinate yeah, our children through goat milk. It's not a bad thought, actually, because, you know, you, you're transmitting, you know, all sorts of things through the goat milk. You know, why not an attenuated bug or something like that? Um, just as a side note with the syphilis thing, and the reason why we don't tell moms to stop breastfeeding when they have syphilis nowadays, the way that they would transmit syphilis is if they had a sore in and around the nipple. And that would touch the baby. So it's not like the syphilis would just be in the breast milk. Um, syphilis was way, way worse back in the day because they didn't have penicillin. Like yeah, people just looked like the like walking the dead all over the place. <laughs> in an attempt to cure babies born with congenital syphilis that it was inherited from their mothers, compounds yeah. laced with mercury were then fed <laughs> to the way, these nanny goats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they, by the way, this was if, you know, and really they'd be mixed with honey. More like pre-antibiotic antibiotics. If the goats would not drink the mercury, they would be deliberately infected by injecting it into the bloodstream through a mercury-containing wow. ointment. And then the mercury would come out of multiple secretions, including the breast milk, and would get into the baby circulation. Yeah, so yeah, although yeah, syphilis it, it, is not transferred in breast milk, mercury absolutely is. Can. Josh, mercury-containing compounds do actually do a number on the syphilis bacterium. For those of you who didn't recall that, we spoke about it last in our pirate medicine episode, and Blackbeard actually yep. held an entire and town hostage to get mercury test. to treat his syphilitic crew. This method, again, as Santos noted, did have some effect of improving yeah. infant mortality rates, although yeah. the goats tended to die prematurely from mercury poisoning. So, you know, it goes both ways. In case you were thinking animals are only helping out humans... During this time period, no, no, no. Women around the world have been encouraged <laughs> wait, to wait, breastfeed, breastfeed animals for a variety animal? of reasons. It could be done to relieve painful or engorged that, breasts, prevent the, pregnancy uh, because nursing can the, stall the ovulation, to encourage lactation, circulating, it suppresses uh, ovulation. And to toughen nipples, certainly in cultures that are yeah, going yeah. around, this, shall we say, like dressed a little bit more lightly for the weather. Yeah, yeah. This, I think that was like a desirable trait is tough nipples. Yeah. So here's a couple examples awesome. of, you know, people in history who have fed animals. Women in the far eastern Russian peninsula of Kamchatka suckled baby bears. Let me repeat that. Russian women breastfed <laughs> bears. Yeah, yeah. If you if you think that you're tough, you are not breastfed baby bears tough. And if you think that's not tough enough, they'd later kill those same bears for their meat and gallbladders Aww. to be used in medicine. Aww. They raised them. They brought them into this world and then took Aww. them out of it. No, they didn't. They didn't bring them into the world. Stop it. <laughs> Russian Russian women don't burn <laughs> baby bears. <laughs> uh, Canadian Native Americans, as well as nurses in Turkey, would use young dogs to maintain their milk supply when they had to travel from distant villages or overseas. So they essentially carried little tail-wagging breast pumps. <laughs> well, in this case, not pumps, right? Because you couldn't really store that milk or, and get it back. It was just... Well, it was, like, I guess, to keep the milk letdown process going. It was. So, you, you know, so production of milk is based on a, a large number of factors. But one of the things that keeps women's breast milk going is if there's constant suckling. 
So as you know, in in the case of a kid, as long as the kid keeps suckling at the breast, um, mom will continue to produce milk. Well, I'd say the majority of the time, but you're right. It doesn't have to be a baby. It can be something else. I guess in this case, puppers. Now, Santosh, you might be asking yourself, how did we know in the earlier story about goat wet nurses, how did we know how many people and ch- how many children were being wet nursed? Where did we get those statistics from? Uh, well, I think the first statistics on that were kept in England. Um, I think like London, Royal Hospital London, something like that. No, it was actually France. And this oh, is because okay. by by the time of the Industrial Revolution, uh, you know, women were entering the workforce. And that meant there was nobody there to care for the children. So more and more working urban mothers would begin to send their babies to the countryside to be cared for by women even poorer than themselves. And it was so pervasive between the wet nurses and the hospital goat wings that Paris became known as the city without children. Oh, oh, interesting. So until 1876, there was a Bureau of Wet Nurses in the city and they offered, you know, alternatives. But in around that time, 1874, 1876, there was the passage of the Roussel Law, which made the supervision of wet nursed infants a national responsibility. So it mandated that every infant placed with a paid guardian outside the parent's home be registered with the state. So we know to the child how many were placed with wet nurses or in facilities. And that ranked out to about 80,000 a year between 1874 and World War One, as well as how many of those infants died. 15%. Oh, dear. Oh, poor things. Although that number, like 1 in 10, 1 in 7 um, of infant mortality is, you know, that's that's really close to like kind of normal infant mortality in a human population if you do nothing to intervene. Which is no better or worse and means that the goat probably was a decent alternative. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, you're you're missing a couple of things, right? So, um, goat's milk, unlike human milk, by and large, doesn't provide folate, um, which you really do need for a growing infant. And I'm, I'd be surprised, uh, you know, if a lot of these kids weren't anemic, um, and you don't quite get the levels of B12 that you need um, in a in a baby that small. Um, well, they had to be anemic. How else are they going to compete with the delicate paleness of all the tuberculosis people? <laughs> that's true. That's true. It was probably quite desirable for them to have near transparent skin. Even back then, couldn't escape the Twilight books. <laughs> well, I don't know all right, moving on. Santosh, let's talk about best friends. Hi. Man's best friends. <laughs> yeah, you knew we weren't going to do an episode without touching an episode on animals without touching on service dogs. Yeah, and and I think this is really important to talk about in this day and age because we have had medical assistant dogs for uh, non-sighted or partially sighted people, um, for people who need assistance who are like paraplegic, quadriplegic. Um, And then we have, of course, like animal therapy dogs, pet therapy dogs, which are absolutely amazing um, for both children and adults in hospitals, but took kind of a nasty turn 
And as with many things, you know, that we humans do, uh, you know, we started abusing the privilege, I think, when we're like, oh, we see that those dogs can get everywhere, you know, even into places where, quote unquote, dogs aren't allowed. Yo, let's call anything that we want a service animal, you know, and then, you know, we started getting into these things where, you know, people were bringing dogs on planes that were not service animals, or they, they would get vests that would say service animal. And, you know, the dog wasn't properly trained and would, you know, destroy a restaurant or something. And then the restaurant would reverse his policy and say, oh, you can't bring your service animals anymore. And then people... Power yeah, corrupts, Santosh. Then- so what makes a service dog or a medical assistant dog or a therapy dog. What are the differences between them? Well, let's start with basic training. (laughs) So international standards are a minimum of 120 hours of training over six months or more. At least 30 of those hours should be time spent in public dealing with distractions and potential surprises that the dog may encounter in the environment. While the U.S. doesn't have a specifically defined requirement for some of these hours and what they have to be, self-regulation is critical and there are guidelines to follow that basically break down in very broad categories into three phases. Dogs have to be able to heal, which is a lot more subtle than just come or sit or stay. It's about always maintaining a certain relative position to the handler, like the dog has to know exactly how far its restraining order is. (laughs) That's true. You know, it can't, like my dog used to do, poor guy, just like take off whenever they wanted to. The next step is proofing, as the dog has to be able to prove or focus on one thing or what it's supposed to be doing, tuning out all distractions and constantly be on command, waiting to be given a task to help with. And that brings us to the third part, which is tasking or the specific task that they'll be performing to serve or assist with. Yeah, yeah. And and this is where you actually give them a specific job. Some of the basic expectations that have to be fulfilled include no aggressive behavior, such as biting, barking, growling, only urinating or defecating on command, uh, not being distracted to the point where they're sniffing everything, basically, no soliciting <laughs> food or affection, and curb yeah, hyperactivity. It's one of those reasons why if you see a service dog and they're taking care of their, you know, their master or their charge, um, you know, you can, you should ask very gently if you're allowed to play or pet the dog and you should never give it like hand fed food or treats because they're kept on a very strict uh, regimen and diet and you can actually break their training by just like giving them random bits of food and stuff. Now that's one possible difference with a therapy dog. Not every therapy dog requires that level of training, but every service dog does. So what are the things that service dogs actually do? Uh, 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 oh, well, oh, um, guide people who are ear blind or blind. Well, they certainly do that. Okay. So they can guide disoriented handlers. So people on medications, people are blind. They can provide tactile stimulation, not only for a lack of sight, oh, but for okay. anxiety or panic attacks, you know, and people who have PTSD. But let's let's go back to the very basics. They can fetch things such as the mail, medicine bottle, the phone. They can bark 
or alert somebody in the other room in case an owner is unable or unaware of them. They can help their owner, as you said, get around by providing, you know, a little <laughs> oomph, a step stool, not a step stool, but uh, a handle yeah. or to help them climb the stairs. Or even for people who are unbalanced or dizzy when walking, as well as carry medicine and other, you know, things like candy bars or snacks in a specialized pack. During emergencies, these dogs, true service dogs, are further trained to bring the phone specifically to the owner to call for 911 or a relative. They know how to bark at a speakerphone to signal for an emergency. They can interrupt psychiatric attacks like panic attacks. They... They learn to recognize and approach the owner during a trigger, such as a seizure or okay. a psychiatric occurrence or a nervous breakdown. And they can run and fetch other people when their owner are in distress, or such as if the owner has harmed themselves or passed out or is just unable to get up. So Lassie really could bring Timmy yeah, yeah. Uh, people Lassie to Timmy if he fell down the well. example of... Like, uh, that that dog needed a ton of training, you know, to be a service dog. And it was kind of cheapened because, you know, it just looked like a really, really smart uh, dog. But uh, that would take hours and hours and hours of training to get a dog to do that. There's even psychiatric service dogs that are trained to specific conditions. So for people who have PTSD... These dogs are trained to search a room sure, sure. for people who are always hypervigilant and looking for threats. For people with OCD who may get into repeated behaviors, oh, nice. the dogs are trained to interrupt and redirect that's really, them. That's brilliant. And, to, and for people who identify, for schizophrenics or people who identify or experience hallucinations, the dogs can help to identify what's real or isn't because it's something that can approach and interact with oh, what cool. is or is so not they can hallucinating. Help point out, oh, this is this is something real that you have to worry about versus this is not. And even for people with depression, the simple act of yeah. having to get out of bed and you know care for an animal can provide benefits during a depressive you can episode. Give someone uh, you know who's depressed is actually purpose. Yeah. So service dogs do a lot more than just guide the blind around and they are very different from emotional support animals which do not have to go yeah. through anywhere near the same kind of rigorous training that service dogs do and therapy dogs fall somewhere in between they don't have to be quite as strict because most therapy dogs are doing things such as visiting nursing homes or schools or hospitals they mostly just have to have a gentle disposition but they do not need to be able to have the same kind of focus and training yeah, yeah. To alert people, provide CPR, and do all these extra tasks. So that's the difference and why these yeah, certificates yeah. So and, and actual training schools can be um, so to important. The trainers, as well as to those wonderful animals who provide such a, this is an amazing service. Um, and so, you know, a little bit of respect for anyone out there who sees these service animals around and you know, maybe think about this. Then, if if anybody has an inkling of getting, you know, just like a vest off the internet or something, like a, for an emotional support animal, just like at least spare a thought for everything that goes into training and taking care of a true 
service animals. Now, as long as we're talking about service animals, uh, uh, you may ask yourself, Sancho, why stop oh, with no. dogs? Oh. You're either a dog person oh, okay. or a helper monkey person. Are wonderful. Although they're much, much harder to obtain and train. If, so, if let's talk about helper right monkeys. And watch the Simpsons episode where Homer gets a helper monkey and just feel all warm and fuzzy inside, we're, we're totally okay with that. <laughs> oh, hi there. Welcome <laughs> <Yeah>. back. <laughs> so, <laughs> helper monkey. Helper right. monkeys can be, are not nearly as common as dogs. <laughs> There's probably a good reason for that, but I don't want to hear it. So... Helper monkeys can be specially trained to assist people with quadriplegia, severe spinal cord injuries, or other significant mobility impairments. And they're usually trained in private schools by organizations. They have to go to monkey college, and it takes about seven years to train. That means (laughs) a monkey trained almost uh, as long as I did to help somebody. In this case... You're not taking a domesticated animal. You're taking a wild animal and acclimatizing them to um, become an assistant to a person. And that does really take a monkey that has a disposition for it. Um, that's okay with, you know, being trained in this manner. Because monkeys, more so than dogs, have, um, you know, a little bit more wish for, you know, pursuing their own wild instincts as well as individual personalities i mean they can't all be uh suchi in captain planet yeah yeah it's uh, then that's right matisse helper monkey you all forgot about the kid with heart didn't you uh, captain planet is basically just an (laughs) all-powerful hero who will not give a fuck about whether or not he killed you yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's, you'd better be very, very thankful. He's an unstoppable that, killing uh, machine heart without heart. After Matisse okay. Monkey Suchi uh-huh. yeah. went to monkey medical school for seven years, he would then be able to serve 25 to 30 years. So, you know, two to three times longer than a service dog. So these monkeys would be socialized in a human home as infants, undergoing extensive socialization and training before they're placed with an individual and there has to be a initial bonding or transitional period. And they will assist in daily living by doing tasks like microwaving food, washing their human's face, opening drink <laughs> bottles, um, Aww, that's cute. adorably tossing salads. In fact, let me share a travel story. There is a tavern in Utsunomiya, Japan, which is, I believe, about... 40 minutes to an hour north of Tokyo that employs two helper monkeys as waiters. And they're two uh, snow macaques who are slightly larger, roughly the size of toddlers. One of them is 12-year-old Yat-Chan. He's dressed in a shirt and shorts, and he takes customers' drink orders and then delivers them to the diner's table. Yat-Chan wasn't even taught. He learned this just by watching the owner because he used to hang around at the hot springs near the restaurant. So he was given a hot towel out of curiosity. He looked at it, brought it to a customer. Now, the younger macaque named Fuku-chan is around, I think, six years old at this point and took over for oh, Yat-chan wow. okay. in bringing hot towels right. to customers so to clean their hands before ordering like drinks. I have been to this restaurant and it was okay. amazing. 
They come out. They're Aww. adorable. Now, these monkeys are paid fair wages. They, you get to tip them in soybeans, and they eat them. They love it to pieces. In fact, it's so popular that the owner, as of 2008, so I'd have to check up on oh, him, wow. uh, was okay, training well, three additional monkeys. I, I, to t- uh, they do all still belong to the owner, and he takes very good care of them as of the last report in 2014. So I don't think – I'm not sure if the restaurant – is reopened or not but it definitely was a fun place to visit when i was there but back to our helper monkeys uh the only organization in the united states that offers them is called helping hands and they use capuchins so the capuchins learn how to turn light switches on and off turn the pages of a book offer a drink play a dvd or blu-ray or oh, even okay. shift a person's so, limbs so they don't oh, develop bed sores or blisters. People? They're so tiny. Okay, so they can lift individual limbs. They're not like dragging you around. They can move an arm or Nice. Okay. Yeah. And this place has been around since the 1970s. So as of 1999, they began breeding their own monkeys on site. Whereas in the early years, in the late 80s and early 90s, they would remove sure. the front teeth and canine teeth of the monkeys to prevent any chance of biting uh-huh. there that made a lot of animal rights organizations unhappy and instead right. they simply breed them to be very gentle and docile but stresses that right. praise right. Okay. affection so and small rewards are used are, to train the monkeys th- this is so positive reinforcement of only that are born into captivity and so they're essentially domesticated it's a pool of about 145 monkeys and you may be asking yourself (laughs) well if there's 145 how come i've never seen one and he said bitterly disabled rather than like oh i wish i had um, enough of a disability to need a monkey I, i didn't wish for a disability i just wish i had a helper monkey right anyway The organization doesn't allow the monkeys to accompany disabled individuals in public settings. And that policy is designed to reduce bites and risk of disease by removing the monkeys from being overstimulated. It's easy to get them to bond and be gentle in a known setting, but taking them out into the wider world does put some strain on the training. So we've covered monkeys, dogs, goats, and rabbits. What other animal? Um, (laughs) I'll give you a hint. After talking with you for the last 50 minutes, I'm starting to become it. (laughs) Oh, the... (laughs) Well, maybe if you wouldn't, like, yell. Oh, thank you. I was going to say horse. (laughs) Uh, Much like our next helper animal, I'm a little horse. And these miniature horses can be trained to guide the blind or to pull wheelchairs Or as the most adorable support for people with Parkinson's uh, disease or cerebral palsy uh, ever. One friend who has a sister um, who has a, you know, motor neuron disease. And she has, you know, had a, just a wonderful life assisted in part by actually training with horses. Um, And so, yeah, for her, horses have been like a centerpiece of her life. And have been amazing therapy to get her through. Miniature and, horses at full grown yeah, vary time. from about twenty six to thirty eight inches. Yeah, yeah, that's a- which okay, Santosh, <laughs> you yeah, like they're they're itty bitty, and the American Miniature Horse Association yeah. limits a height <laughs> to no higher than thirty eight inches. Anything bigger than that, and it's you know a horse, which is a horse, of course, of course, and. 
<laughs> no one can judge a, a horse, of course. That is, of course, unless the horse yeah, is good. a famous therapy horse. Or Mr. Ed. <laughs> Go right to the source and ask the horse. He'll give you an answer that you'll endorse. He's always on a steady course. Talk to Mr. Ed. On average, you know, at the at the head will be above six feet tall. Um, and they are massive. We're talking about a thousand pounds, thirteen hundred, fifteen hundred pounds um, on the higher end. Sometimes even eighteen hundred pounds. And if you're trying to work with them and you're disabled, you're just going to get shoved around. So you can, you know, you you can't really work with them on the same level. But if you take the horse and you go tiny, <laughs> now all of a sudden you've got. An animal that's capable of carrying you just because they're super, super strong and sturdy. Um, they can still play. Uh, they're quite affectionate and loving. A lot of the times um, they want to help. Um, so they still have that kind of personality of like, oh, you know, I want to I want to help my human friend. Um, but, you know, you've, you've got a manageable size. So that, you know, if you need to climb on top, if you just need to, to be guided, so you need to put your hand on the back and and have them walk you places you can do that too now from some more practical now some from some more practical standpoints oh, nice. okay. uh, miniature horses have an average lifespan of about yeah. 30 to 40 years so longer than those of both dogs and they can be used by people whose religion may consider dogs to be non-permissible or people who have serious allergies or phobias of dogs a lot of the times horses fur is quite, uh, you know, it's like short hair, and they don't have dander, per se. So they're much nicer to have around for allergy people. Uh, there's many fewer horse trainers, so it only takes six months to a year of training done by professional trainers, and there's no question of whether or not a therapy horse is being faked, as it were. So they're yeah. recognized typically immediately as a working service animal, Whereas a dog can very often be mistaken for a pet. Uh, that's true. So, you know, if you walk around with a miniature horse, it's pretty clear that that thing, you know, is for service. No, no, this is my service horse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's it for our our animal medicine or our animal helpers. And I think we learned some fun stuff along the way today, Santosh. I was so happy to learn about it. Like that there's still like there there's miniature horses that are specifically there to help people and that they're uh, like a like a group of capuchin monkeys just ready to help people. That made me so, so happy. But I think you teaching me about um, like wet nurse goats was the coolest. Um, <laughs> I'll I'll let everybody out there know right now. Please don't feed little babies goat milk because they will be folate deficient, um, and that's a big big deal. Um, this was in a time when, you know, we were trying to figure stuff out like how to not give babies syphilis, and we figured a lot of that out right around now. So um, yeah, yeah, Bre breast milk if you can. Otherwise, formula is still good. But uh, that's such a cool, neat solution for the time. Right. So, you know, there they weren't having the debate, let's breastfeed or bottle feed. It's let's peasant feed or goat feed. <laughs> oh, man. I'm, I'm pretty sure, like, I can't 
speak for what absolutely what I'd do if I was in that day and age, but I'm pretty sure I'd go. And for a fun just the tip this week, let's fly on over to Singapore, which has as what is as far as I'm concerned, the greatest zoo in the world. Oh, yeah? Wait, wait, I thought you liked the one in Australia a lot. I went to the one in Melbourne, and that was fun, but that was just to see the platypus. No, Singapore has one of the greatest zoos in the world, okay. as far as I'm concerned, yeah. and there's a couple of reasons for that. You can start your morning by having breakfast with an orangutan, where you get to go up and <laughs> high-five it and eat in its <laughs> presence. It's wonderful. Aww. I hope the orangutan gets breakfast, and too, then, so it's not just like staring hungrily at your food. Oh, not only does the orangutan get its own breakfast, but the orangutans, as well as several other simians throughout the zoo, have their own series of vines and wires strung high above the rest of the park, giving them free run of the zoo themselves but separated from other zoo-goers and falling into, say, the lion pit by safety nets. So the animals are allowed to wander around the zoo within their own much, much larger park-wide enclosures, as opposed to a single individual area. Imagine the monkeys get to go to the zoo. If that wasn't cool enough, when you go to the zoo, most of the time, all you see is animals sleeping. Because most animals are nocturnal. No, it's not necessarily that they're nocturnal, but that most animals eat, sleep, and, you know, the, and, and poop. That's about, you know, they have little bits of playtime and things like that, but most of their time is spent conserving their energy because evolutionarily, you know, we never know where our next meal is coming from. The Singapore Zoo came up with two different ways to approach that. One, there is a gentleman who is the dedicated snack man of the zoo. And they post his schedule, and he travels from carnivore enclosure to carnivore enclosure with a bucket of meat, which is not the animal's meal for the day, but just a tiny little snack, so you get to see them being active. You can look at his schedule, follow him around, and watch as the cheetahs come running. The lions wake up from their naps, and the tigers will pace and play with little bits of steak he throws into them oh, in the middle nice. of the afternoon. Okay, so just like a little like a little stimmy, just like, you know, hey, we know you're here to see animals, so let's at least try to encourage them a little bit. And since they have that open area, rather than, you know, their limited tiny little cage, they'll actually like, go out and, and play it a little bit too. You can also feed giraffes as well as rhinos. And rhinos have great big <laughs> floppy lips that feel like a Muppet is trying <laughs> is to eat your hand. Listen, I think we've already learned that if I'm going to suffer some terrible injury, it'll be from overestimating the <laughs> yeah, friendliness like of an animal. a end. rhinoceros. Although rhinos aren't quite as grumpy. Like, I'm, I'm glad you didn't go and try to feed a hippo or something. Oh, God, no. I can only think of cocaine hippos <laughs> from Colombia. Do you suppose they're actually coked out or anyway, they're just hippos? No, the original four were probably coked out, but the remaining 52 <laughs> the remaining are just 52. angry. <laughs> Guys, if if you don't know about Pablo Escobar's, you know, just rhinoceros or uh, hippopotami, yeah, yeah, just please go. Hippo army? Yeah, <laughs> you'll, well, you can thank us later. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. 
If you'd like to support the show spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can do that by following links in the show notes or listening to us using the Radio Public app. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all of my co-hosts. And until next time, Bye, guys. as always, happy travels. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.